Good morning. Uh, today for our scripture reading time, we're doing things a little differently uh, than we typically do. So instead of, of reading just only the passage that's going to be preached on today, uh, we are actually going to read the entire book of James during service this morning. Um, and we're, gonna, as this, we're doing this as we start our new series uh, called Real Faith, going through the book of James over these next nine weeks. And uh, we're doing this for three main reasons. Uh, first, this is really going to help give us a good overview, a, a big picture of what's happening in the book of James, what James' overall message is, what he's trying to communicate. And we find so often when we read scripture, it's so easy to just read an isolated verse or passage here and there. And while each bit of scripture is so deep and there's so much depth of truth and beauty in it, it's important to sometimes take a look at what is the overall message in an entire book at once. Um, and reading that through all the way through uh, is helpful to do that. And second, uh, we're doing this um, because this is similar to how James's original audience would have encountered this book. So James wrote this letter to scattered groups of persecuted Christians, and they would have gathered together, and someone would have read that pat the whole book of James out loud to them, like we would today. If someone sent us a letter, we'd sit down and read the entire thing through, um, and not just read one bit here and there, um, but also be read aloud, um, because in that day, many people were illiterate. They couldn't read on their own. And so one person would read it aloud, and people would hear um, what, what God was saying through James in, in that time. And the last reason we're going to read this through all the way today is because Scripture is really that important. You know, Scripture is important enough for us to take 15 minutes out of our service and just listen to what God has to say through, through, um, through James. Scripture is important enough for us to take 15 minutes out of Gabe's sermon, and that might not be an easy thing to do, um, but... Uh, you know, it, we, it's, it's important enough to do that. Also, and it might just be, you know, 15 minutes later to brunch for the rest of us. We'll have to, we'll have to see how that goes. Um, but scripture is that important, and we're going to take that time today. Um, how we're going to do that, we're going to read it. You all, all be seated. Um, uh, and then also we have at the end of each row, we have our forum.life journal, companion journals. And we have the entire book of James printed off in there, the first few pages. And so if you want to grab one of those, uh, if you'd like to follow along, and you can mark it up, highlight, um, circle important words or key themes that James returns to as we read um, this whole book of James this morning. All right, here we go. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own, he will brought us, he will brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose, the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much for reading, friends. That was rich for me to just sit under and to remember. And now, having heard the whole book of James read in our hearing, let's take a moment to pray together, shall we? Our good, good Father, we are grateful for this time and this space. We are grateful for a convening place where we can gather in your name and hear your word read and hear a whole letter read in our hearing. As those themes and the various flow of James' letter um, penetrated our ears, may they also penetrate our hearts and illuminate before us the truth of what you have for us today. Guide us in our time together. We trust that your spirit is at work within us individually and among us corporately in a unique way in this space and in this time. We trust in you. Guide us in these ways, we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. 
Well, if I don't know you, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here, and something you need to know about me uh, is that sometimes kids' toys, uh, they drive me up the wall. Um, and, you know, whether you have kids or not, there are some common uh, ideas around why kids' toys can make you go nuts. One of them is that they just play like a short snippet of music or sound over and over and over and over until you crack. Um, or there's just something about kids' toys that the moment you get them cleaned up, you turn around, you sneeze, and then you turn around again, and suddenly it's a hurricane again, um, and you have to watch your step. But those aren't even the real reasons why um, kids' toys drive me bonkers um, at times. One of the reasons kids' toys drive me nuts is that they tend to be and can be a really cheap imitation of the real thing. And I'm going to, some of you are like, <laughs> what is up with this little guitar? Of here, some of you know me well enough, knew where this was going. Um, so, I'm going to give you what, whether you wanted it or not, what you may be expected. Um, it's a bit of a prop for the, us this morning. This particular uh, guitar-esque toy um, is one of my kids' favorite toys for each and every one of them. Um, but it drives me nuts, um, not just for the reasons mentioned earlier. Um, I mean, it's. Oh, excellent, you know, let's jam, if you didn't hear that over my voice. The one of the reasons, uh, there's two particular reasons why this guitar-esque toy imitation drives me nuts, and specifically as it pertains to my kids, is one, Strum the guitar to jam. it talks whenever it wants, uh, but more than that, uh, <laughs> it teaches my kids, and they, they, you, you see this sometimes when they approach other things, that that takes the, the smallest amount of effort to become an expert. All you have to do, play the keyboard to jam. right, is just play this, watch this. And now you're an expert. All you gotta do is move this around and suddenly you've become the guitar hero you've always wanted to be. Um, alongside of just training my kids that they don't have to really do anything to be excellent, the other thing, see you soon, see you soon. yeah. Um, the other thing that drives me nuts about this is that it actually, robs them of the experience of holding a real guitar. The smell of the wood, the, the work of learning chords and your fingers getting calloused, and, but eventually being able to actually play those songs. And, and, and more than anything, what these kinds of cheap imitation toys do, they have their place, to be clear, but as this, it, it provides a ceiling, it makes a ceiling on the creativity of my kids. If all they are is satisfied with that, then they can only play the two songs that that thing will play over and over and over. But if they learn a real guitar, if they learn how to play the chords and pluck the strings and the different parts of the guitar, and then they have a, a whole new pasture that they can explore with their creativity. Not just learning more songs, but writing songs and the joy of expression and the opportunity that it presents itself alongside of that, and the joy of actually getting through something hard and experiencing joy on the other end because you came through it and you've learned something. All of that is why this particular toy drives me nuts because of what it takes from my kids if I let it. And so what I want as a dad is I really wanted real guitars for all of my kids, okay? Now, there's a problem with that. Um, and there's two problems. They're a lot more expensive. 
Uh, and simultaneously, they require a lot more responsibility, not just from them, but from me, right? With that, they can throw that in our ottoman, you know, and amongst other toys, they can bang it on the wall, they can drop it, the batteries can fall out, and it will survive. A real guitar, it won't, um, as I've seen them do with other things that I've really valued and cherished in my life. So, um, and the other thing is, real guitars are just harder to come by. You know, sometimes you got to figure out, okay, what size is going to work for their size body? And then you got to go look, and sometimes they're out of stock, and then you got to figure out when they're going to get shipped, and then you don't want them to become entitled that you got them this really nice guitar at a small age, and then what if they don't play it? Real guitars are harder to come by. But here's the deal. With anything that's real, real things are genuinely or generally harder to come by, aren't they? Real things are harder generally to come by. Um, that, that's true whether it's if you're building a house and it comes to hardwood floors. Um, hardwood floors are a lot harder to come by anymore. They're very expensive. If you're going out to eat, real food is uh, really hard to come by. Sometimes even the food you put in your fridge isn't real food sometimes, right? So real food's hard. Real friendships, like real friends, that are there with you thick and thin, through thick and thin. That's hard to come by. And the same is true when it comes to real faith. Real faith. Faith that leverages or pushes all of its trust into God and actually submits all of oneself to Him, even when things don't necessarily all line together in perfect alignment just yet. But you're trusting. You're going to lean into who He is and His character and His purposes for your life. That kind of real faith. It's harder to come by. And the question that lurks over this whole longing for real faith is where on earth do we find real faith? And that's where James actually points us today. We're walking through the book of James, really the letter from James to a group of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. And James has the audacity the audacity that you and I could actually know real faith, that it could be true for you and for me. Now, sure, there are a lot of imitations out there that make it a lot easier, that are a lot faster, that feel like they're making a lot more progress or that you feel like you've already arrived way quicker. There are a lot of temptations, but here's the deal. When it comes to real faith, Anybody who's satisfied with an imitation just from personal experience, it never keeps your, your interest very long. Any sort of imitation faith, eventually you'll show up long enough, you'll, you'll make some friends, maybe you'll have a couple experiences, but at the end of the day, the imitation faith, you're going to be like, what am I doing with my Sundays? Why am I going to these classes? Why am I trying to engage in these different practices? Why am I following Jesus? On my, why am I doing all of this? Because imitation faith isn't really that compelling over the long haul. It has a ceiling. And when you bump up against that ceiling, it feels fruitless. It feels um, like you're wasting your time. But real faith, that's what helps you go the distance. And actually, what we're going to come to see today is that God wants real faith for all of us. That's the unique insight that James has when he brings this all together. Now, whenever I think about real faith, at least my first gut response was like, man, this feels like a heavy burden. Like, man, how am I going to get real faith? 
I got to do all of these things. I've, and even as you're listening to the whole book of James, right, it's like, man, James is very heightened on the practical. And that slowly over time, and especially if you're coming with maybe some baggage from other relationships or broken relationships and you're projecting them on this text, suddenly it feels like real faith and what God wants from you and what the church wants from you is too tall of an order. And so gathering with God's people and reading God's word is just another place where you're going to feel like a failure. But that is not what James is seeking to communicate. That real faith is this extraordinary burden placed on us that we are eking out a barely, you know, this, this struggling existence. Instead, real faith is something that God wants for all of us. He wants this for us, not just from us. And it's not just something for the spiritual elite. It really is for you. And, and if you knew, like, the real me, for me, <laughs> And my own struggles, my own battles. God wants this real faith for all of us. And here's why. It's only through real faith are we able to experience the life he wants for us to experience both now and into eternity. This is the window. Not the imitation that has a ceiling that will eventually leave you dissatisfied and frustrated. Real faith invites us on the pastures of life and life abundant that he really is calling us to. And for us to begin to explore that today in the book of James, we're going to look here first at the context of the passage. So if you haven't already, would you turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1, James chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2. Hear now God's word once again for us. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let's stop there for just a minute. Whenever you're reading a text, you need to understand that it was not, especially when it comes to Scripture, we are stepping into ancient text, meaning it wasn't written directly to you in the 21st century. It was written by a first century author, as you know, in the New Testament anyway, a first century author to a first century audience. And it was written for us throughout all time. It's beneficial for us, but we need to understand who is the original author and who is the original audience so we can actually get at what the text is communicating rather than just thinking, well, I took this out of it, therefore it means, no, 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 no. Let's get back to what it originally was meaning to the original audience. So let's first talk about James for a second as we step into this text, okay? James. James actually in the first couple centuries of the church was known as James the Just. Why? If you are just listening at all to this letter, James has a lot of language around justice and how the poor and the rich engage one another and God's purposes of justice in the community, how we care for the most vulnerable and the oppressed in the community, orphans and widows in that particular context, right? And so James is very passionate about justice, how faith actually shapes the very social structure of the people of God. And when people start saying, just as an aside, that the gospel is really not about justice and talking about justice is a diversion from the gospel, they have not read the Bible. They are touting someone else about someone else who read someone else who's gotten so far from the scriptures that they've lost sight of what's actually there. That's just an aside. That has nothing to do with today. But James the Just, that was his nickname <laughs> in the first couple centuries following the writing of this letter. Also, what's fascinating about James is that he's the brother of Jesus. 
I know if you've been around in the church for a while, um, you've maybe heard this before, but I never can get past this fact. I mean, if you look in the gospel accounts, so those who knew Jesus the best, who were walking with Jesus and did deep historical research to tell a full orb story of Jesus in history, would talk about Jesus's brothers and sisters, such that one time he was teaching and his brothers and sisters, in, in, a, in a cultural setting where it was really common to have very large families, his brothers and sisters came up to Jesus and they said, hey, uh, Jesus, you're starting to look nuts, okay? People are starting to say you're the son of God. We know you, you, you're our brother. Um, so come on, it's time to come home. And then what does he say? He's like, actually, who are my brothers and sisters? But those who do the will of the Father, right? Somebody told me I was snapping a lot the other day. So I apologize <laughs> if that's like been a thing. I don't know if it's like a parenting thing. Like, hey, you're like, what are we doing? Um, <laughs> stick with me, you know. I've got weaknesses as well in my communication strategy. But here we go. Um, imagine, like, what would it take for you to believe that one of your siblings was God? I don't know if you're like in the back of your mind, you'd probably be like, dude, if he died and he came back from the dead, well, that's what happened to James. So James is like, oh, well, you know, Jesus came back from the dead. This seems pretty significant. I, I guess he was God. You know, at, very, very, at the beginning, it was anti-Jesus's ministry and what Jesus was proclaiming about himself. But after the resurrection, we see a pretty big transformation in a family member, a brother, of Jesus, James, here. But not only that, we see that actually throughout church history, and this is recorded in the book of Acts, that James eventually becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so over time, he's actually the overseer of the church that's there gathered in Jerusalem, a bunch of Jewish followers of Jesus. But then persecution hits. Stephen, the first Jewish martyr, a follower of Jesus, is he's killed. And then it begins this broader scattering of these followers of Jesus all across the Roman Empire. So when it reads to the 12 tribes and the dispersion, he's really talking about, most scholars agree that this is really Jewish followers of Jesus across the Roman Empire. And James, knowing that his people are now scattered, as a good pastor, he's talking to the online audience, right? He's like, hey, I may not be able to be with you in person, but I want to give you some pastoral guidance. And he understands, he's anticipating some of the struggles that are coming their way. Maybe he's already heard some of the stories trickling into him of the people that he had pastored, that he had led, that are now scattered across the Roman Empire. And here's one of the greatest temptations that these early Jewish followers of Jesus are facing as they're scattered across the Roman Empire. And it's this. One of the greatest temptations for them while they're scattered across these various provinces is just to slowly back down into being culturally Jewish again and silencing their proclamation that Jesus was indeed the true Messiah of God's people and therefore including the Gentiles. It's very, I mean, it, it's kind of like a smudging of faith. It's an argument that you're going to say, I'm just going to be quiet about something rather than, than actually being consistently vocal in terms of proclaiming the good news or living out that Jesus really is the promised Messiah. All you got to do, all you got to do is slowly meander your way back into this Jewish framework that actually rejects Jesus as the Messiah and just go about your life. Why is that? Because in the Roman Empire, there were certain religions that were legal. Judaism was a legal religion. 
But Christianity, or followers of the way that we see that they're commonly called across the book of Acts, was not a legal religion. Therefore, you could be imprisoned and in jail. It wasn't like the freedom of religion we have here in the United States, where you can have different sorts of sects or different belief structures. Instead, there were certain religions that were allowed, and there were many that were not allowed. And if you're engaged in one of the illegal ones, you could be imprisoned, persecuted, maybe even put to death. And so the temptation is real. They're now across the Roman Empire, and all they have to do is just be quiet about this part, that they are now followers of Jesus. And it didn't help that other Jewish non-followers of Jesus were very antagonistic to the Jewish people who were followers of Jesus. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts when he was formerly called Saul. He was a Jewish religious leader, a Pharisee who was zealous on persecuting, imprisoning, and then actually was holding the cloak of those who were stoning Stephen. I mean, those who were anti-Jesus were very anti-Jesus within Judaism. It felt like blasphemy. So this isn't anti-Semitic in any framework. This is actually anti-Christ. Those who were followers of Jesus that were Jewish were being persecuted by those who were Jewish that were not followers of Jesus. It's not like, oh, see, this is anti No, 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 no. So what, what James is saying as a Jewish man to these other Jewish people who were followers of Jesus is, hey, hey, don't slide back into Judaism because it feels like it's comfortable and you can avoid persecution. Don't do that. And he says, I'm going to go one step further. And he goes, I want to reframe what you're about to experience. And that's where we get to verse 2 where he says, count it all joy. What James says right here is where we're starting to get a window into what real faith is. Here it is. Real faith embraces challenges as a gift. Real faith receives challenges as a gift. And actually this phrase here, the beginning of verse 2, count it all joy. I actually think the translation count it pure joy Meaning like consider this like an inclusion of something as like that God's giving you a gift to actually be able to suffer for the name of Jesus. Which listen, if you're actually in the midst of pain, hardship, suffering, or challenge, and somebody's like putting their arm around you like, dude, isn't this a gift? What's your response? You're like, you jerk. You're so emotionally like neutral. Do you even understand what's going on? And yet James as their pastor, as their leader, is helping them reorient. And this is one of the most loving things he can do, is helping reorient the hardship that really does come with real faith in Jesus and the challenges that will indeed come. Now, part of the reason why this can feel so absurd when James says, count it all joy or count it pure joy, is because not only do we not understand this text, we just don't understand ourselves as human beings and how these emotional states interact with one another. He's not saying count it just as joy or only joy. We need to understand how joy works. And for that, there's a helpful quote in a book called The Other Half of Church. One of the authors is Jim Wilder, and he helps us better understand how joy is both portrayed across the pages of Scripture and also internally for us as human beings. Here's what he writes. should be up on the screen. It is important to remember that joy is not strictly an emotion. We might refer to it as a supra-emotion. Say supra-emotion. Supra-emotion. Because it can go on top of and connect with other emotions. For example, this is good. If I lose my job, this is usually not considered a joyful occasion. Instead, I'm probably feeling some combination of sadness, fear, and anger. However, 
When I experience these unpleasant emotions and can simultaneously feel that God is with me, I have added joy into the mix. Now I'm feeling sad and joyful, fearful and joyful, angry and joyful. Joy does not replace the unpleasant emotions. Instead, it combines with my emotions to keep me relationally connected in distress. So in the midst of this, James isn't trying to shame you for feeling sad or feeling afraid or feeling angry. That is not what this text is communicating. He's saying, actually, as a follower of Jesus, now we have joy added into the mix. When challenges come, when trials come, when suffering comes, on account of your association exclusively with Jesus. And so it becomes a gift. And just in case somebody's like, James is off his rocker. He's an outlier. He doesn't, he hasn't like interacted with the other disciples, the other apostles. Wrong. Go to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. And he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Then you go to Peter, right? He's the leader of these apostles. Surely he's got something else to say. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he goes, yeah, we rejoice even though we are grieved. So you have joy and sadness, even though we are grieved by persecutions for a short time. Joy and sadness. Or then even let's just go to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted, right? For they shall see the kingdom of heaven blessed, happy, are the persecuted. What? They have a better understanding of how we operate as human beings, that in the midst of hardship, we can actually know joy. It's an extraordinary gift we have been given as followers of Jesus. And real faith actually receives these challenges as a gift. And honestly, it's one of the hardest things at times as a follower of Jesus is actually to go through really difficult times in our life and actually to receive them with joy. But what James is saying is what we have as followers of Jesus, real faith actually empowers us to have joy in the midst of difficult times. Now, if you're anything like with anything like me, I don't get satisfied with like little simple pat answers that just like, just have joy, you know, like, and like, why? Like, that's a question that comes to my mind because I actually want to do this and I want to be happy about it. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but here we go. Let's keep reading. And I think we're going to get some, some brilliant insight from James as to why we actually get joy Not that we have to always work hard at it, but we can actually have joy. It gets given to us in the midst of difficult times. All right, look with me. Verses three and four. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. Now, a key word here is this word testing. The moment we see the word testing, especially in our educational model, we tend to think of something like an algebra test. And some of you have just got cold chills down your back. I apologize for bringing you back to that moment in your life. Um, An algebra test, right, the main goal is pass or fail. Um, And sometimes we think that that's what this is about. Like, do we have real faith or do we not have real faith? No, 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 no. It's not a pass or fail scenario. This word testing is much more akin to refinement. So this is what they would do with silver or gold in the refinement processes of these precious metals. That in this refinement process, it would actually burn off or clear off the impurities so that what you're left with, it was already gold, it was already silver to begin with, but it's more refined. It's more fully only gold and silver. It's not seeing if this rock has gold in it. It's refining it to be more of what it already 
is, but in a more pure and whole fashion. That's actually what James is communicating here with this word testing. And what we also need to understand is that God leverages these moments of refinement for us, but that doesn't always mean that he's the one who's doing the actual work. You know, you may have heard as you read the whole book of James being read that Job is mentioned at the end. Did you pick up on that as you were listening to the text read? Who does the testing of Job? It's the evil one, the Satan, the adversary. But God allows that to happen, and it becomes a catalyst for Job's growth. Just because bad things happen in your life doesn't mean God's like, all right, I'm pulling this lever, and he's the one who's caused all the terrible things in your life to happen. Instead, he may allow terrible things to happen caused by evil people or evil forces, but he can leverage even the most broken of situations for your refinement. That's what we are to see. And that's even what James was getting at later, that God does, isn't tempted by evil and he doesn't tempt anyone to evil, okay? So I wanted to make that clear as we're stepping into that. But when we're going through these moments of refinement and we're steadfast, we persevere through them and we let it have its full effect, the outcome is that we are perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. That's the goal, this wholeness. It's through these paths of refinement that God wants to make us more whole. Here's our why. The reason real faith sees and receives challenges as a gift is because we come to understand that God actually uses these challenges to grow us in wholeness, to grow us more whole, to make us more mature. That's what God wants in your life and mine. Look with me, chapter 1, verse 17 this is the kind of God we have. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's not like he's evil, wicked, or lost his cool over here, and he's good and a, one who brings good gifts over there. He's always this way. And so in the moments of refinement, he's actually leveraging that to make us more whole. And don't we long to be more whole? Those spots of our lives that feel like there's gaps or there's emptiness or there's loss. He's working and actually guiding us through this whole process to make us more whole. He's like a really good artist who's already got this painting in his mind. And he's going through the various brushstrokes. He's like a really good father who's not satisfied with his kids playing with an imitation toy, but he wants them to become musicians and be able to experience the fullness of creativity and music. You see, God knows who he's designed you to be, who he's called you to be, and he's not satisfied with you staying where you are. He wants you to be all that you are capable of, that he has made you capable of, and the wholeness that he longs for you. And you see, what real faith does is it sees his goal as our goal too. God uses these challenges big ones and small ones as irreplaceable parts of the journey towards our wholeness. And I mean, think about this. Who are some of the most mature people in your life? Chances are really good. They've gone through some deep valleys of suffering, of pain, and hardship. Now, some of the most bitter people you ever meet have probably also gone through some deep valleys, hardship, and suffering. The key catalyst and difference is how they see those were used for their good or not. 
Those who are the most deeply bitter people you'll ever meet feel like somebody and everybody owes them something because that was wasted space. Those who are the most mature, those who are the most compassionate, who will come alongside of you, who come with wisdom, understand not that God is behind every hard thing in your life, but God leverages every hard thing in your life for refinement and growth because he's that involved. He's that good of a father. And he's even taking really terrible situations and he's sanding them down and he's moving them around. And he's actually now leveraging them as a gift in your life for your growth and your wholeness. That's how extraordinary our God is. And James doesn't want us to miss this. And he's like, consider it a gift. And when you do and you see God at work in that way, how could you not experience even going through that, yes, still experiencing sadness and fear and anger, but experiencing joy? And isn't that the kind of joy we want? You see, God wants real faith for all of us. He wants it for us because only real faith empowers us in the midst of challenges to actually still have joy. Now, I know for some, the moment we start hearing this, and we see what James is talking about here. There are some folks who are like, man, I, I, want, I want some of that. I want to grow in that kind of faith. There are other, others in here who feel like, man, I don't even know where to begin. I feel ill-equipped. Well, verse 5 is actually an extraordinarily helpful next step that clarifies where and how we're to navigate these challenges, not just with joy and seeing God working in us um, towards wholeness, but how when we feel like we're stuck? Let's read together. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be, it might be, it could be on Tuesdays and Thursdays between nine and five. No, it will be given him. God wants real faith for all of us. And he's actually promised to help. All we have to do is ask for God's help throughout the challenge. Ask for help from God throughout the challenge. You know, the moment we started stopping playing with this guitar, we got guitars and we stuck them on our wall in our dining room. Um, they're easy to grab, but still not easy to play. <laughs> And what has happened now in the midst of that is when I walk in the door, um, coming back from the office or um, it's just after dinner, is my son Zion almost without missing a beat says, Dad, can we play guitar? Dad, can we play? He's two years old. It's awesome. He bobs his head and he likes drums. It's the coolest thing ever. Never did that with that, to be clear. Um, not the way that he does it now. So here's the deal. He, he knows that he needs me to get the guitar down. He knows and he wants me to show him how to play the chords. He wants me to be present with him. He wants to do this together. And now this extraordinary challenge has become an invitation to intimacy together. That's what we see here. When you're experiencing these challenges, God's like, ask me. And, and my gift to you isn't that you're going to get through this challenge alone. One of my glorious gifts is that I'm going to come and I'm going to help you. Know, and we're going to actually grow together in our intimacy through the journey. That's what God wants to do in our lives. And secondly, he doesn't necessarily always come and answer our prayer for an escape. Do you see what he's willing to give and promises to give? It's not to stop the pain or stop the challenge or to, you know, provide an aid station where everything can be shut down. Instead, it's to give you wisdom. That's where he's 
promise to be generous. You want to know how to navigate this? Oh, I'm going to walk with you through it. You know, as Robert Frost in his brilliant Servant of Servants poem says, right, the only way through or the only way out is always through. And God's like, yes, but I'm going to be with you and I'm going to train you on how to do it. Why? Because he wants you to grow up. He wants you to be whole and mature. And you can't do that by just sitting there fiddling with something that has a ceiling that will never get you where you want to go. That's how God is generous in our lives. That's how God is working. And so if we have these disciplines where we're engaged in Scripture and we're listening to Him on a regular basis, if we're gathering with God's people, listening to Him and for Him, if we're expecting Him to show up and work and shape us on Monday as well as Sunday, then God will actually begin to train us and how to live into His designed world. God will actually begin to form us into the kinds of people who are ready for His kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And a good example of this is the Apostle Paul. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, the Apostle Paul, and I just love his example of leadership because he doesn't come with like this braggadocious, you know, I'm the best thing since sliced bread kind of personality. Instead, he starts talking about his weakness. And he says, listen, I prayed to God that three times over he would take away this thorn in my flesh. We don't know exactly what it is, but we know that it was tormenting him and it was hard. And what was God's answer? Paul my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. God's answer wasn't, I'm going to take it away. It's this, it, God's answer was, I'm going to actually form you, and I'm going to use that weakness for my glory and for the good of the church, whatever that was. Are we willing to accept that kind of answer in the midst of challenges? We see it modeled. We see it promised that we can have wisdom. And so as we walk through the challenges of our life this next week, and as we're reading and journeying our way through the book of James, I just want to invite you to be asking that God would help you through the challenge rather than taking you out of it. Maybe, just maybe, as we heard later read in James, we have not because we ask not with this intention, with this particular promise in mind. Because listen, it's not because God is unable to hear or answer our prayers. He's willing. He's willing to give us wisdom. He longs to give us wisdom and the intimacy that comes when we lean into him. Because, listen, the reason we can do so with such great confidence is because if God the Father has given us the Son, Jesus, and his Spirit, he will also give us wisdom. That's why we can ask without doubting. Because of what he has already given, why would he stop there? He loves us so much. He entered into the world and he suffered for us. And he's inviting us to trust him in the midst of our suffering that he might guide us through our own suffering and challenges. And he's revealed himself perfectly in space and time within history in his son Jesus and his death and also the resiliency of that life in his resurrection and his spirit that he's placed within us. This is the kind of God we have, a God who wants real faith for us, not just from us, if we'll but trust him. If we'll see what he's doing, even in the midst of those challenges, as an avenue for our wholeness, if we'll trust his character, that he really is a good father, that he hasn't lost control, but he's even working for our good, even in the worst of circumstances. Will you trust him? Well, let's ask, shall we? Let's ask him together. Let's go ahead and pray. Let's pray. 
Today in our prayer, we're going to be doing a corporate prayer, a read and response. And so I'm going to begin with a short snippet of prayer, and then I will read the section called Leader, and you will read the section called All. But in the midst of this, the rhythm that you're going to see us go through is we're going to highlight different areas of challenge or trial. And then together, we're going to be asking for God's wisdom for ourselves and for us as a community of faith. We're going to be putting some language to this actual asking rather than maybe feeling like we're floundering. So together, we're going to pray this together. So let me begin us in a word of prayer, and then we'll engage what is on the screen. Our Father, we are so grateful that you are good, that we can have confidence that every, not part, not some, I didn't earn some of these gifts, but every good and perfect gift, it comes from you because you want our best. So God, guide us in wisdom. Help us to be a people who grow into wholeness rather than chasing after comfort. Help us to trust you with who we're becoming, not just with what we want to avoid. We need you, God. We need your help. And so it is we pray together for those facing the trials of physical and mental health. O oh God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials of relational discord and division, O oh God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials of vocational change or job loss, O oh God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials of doubt and uncertainty, O oh God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials of seeing loved ones go through trials, O oh God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials of loneliness and isolation, O oh God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials of being bullied and picked on, O oh God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials of personal failure and disappointment, O oh God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials of grieving the loss of someone or something, O oh God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials that can't even be named or understood. O oh God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. As we pray for ourselves and for one another through these trials, we submit everything to the will of Him who taught us to pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.